the spirit is here for sure. Um, it's actually fun. I'm not going to sing. I don't have plans to sing. We'll see where the spirit leads me, but I don't have plans to sing today. But the one uh, sermon that I like in the like, I don't know, five years ago, went to like a church in Chicago and the pastor sang a lot through his sermon and the song he was singing was Jesus, we love you. So you never know. But I do not plan to sing today. Um, if you are youth, go with Godfrey. And <laughs> go with God and Godfrey to youth. He's there. Um, and we will get started. Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Moses Shoyola. I am one of the lay pastors here at Lower Manhattan Community Church. And I know Phil's already welcomed you, but it is my privilege and excitement to just welcome you to the 2023 Lower Manhattan Community Church Retreat. And uh, I get so excited for this weekend every year because one, it's always just a huge catalyst for the rest of my year in terms of a word from God, but also it's the time where the faces that have become recognizable at church, kind of familiar, some unfamiliar, but you can pick them out in a crowd, you actually build those relationships into something that's more like family. And I remember my first retreat like nine or 10 years ago, a bunch of us young folks stayed up all night playing mafia. Another retreat, there were a bunch of the guys that played poker till the wee hours of the morning. And it's this long extended time of fellowship that really solidifies these relationships into something real instead of being something superficial. So take advantage of that this weekend. Dig in, get to know people, and make the people in this room your family. Um, for the message this morning, we are continuing in our Who Do You Say I Am series. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples this piercing question, who do you say I am? And it's an important question for us to answer as followers of Jesus. And so we're gonna use the messages of this series to explore and reflect on who Jesus is. We're gonna discover how God's story is linked together through the Old Testament and the New Testament. I forgot my water, I'm gonna need my water. And thank you. And um, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we're going to see how we see Jesus throughout all of Scripture in the Bible from the beginning to the end. And the goal is that by the end of this series, we'll all be able to answer with conviction when asked who we say Jesus is. Um, so today we're going to be looking at that question, who do you say I am, through the lens of who the Messiah is promised to be in the book of Isaiah. And we don't have a single scripture reading today because we're going to be looking at a bunch of different passages throughout the book of Isaiah, and it's hard to pick just one. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, King Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you. We know that you are in this room. We feel ushered into your presence through the worship, and we are just excited to hear from you. So, speak, Father. Uh, let it be you who speaks and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, when Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do you say I am, Peter is the first one to answer, and Peter's always first. He's the first one off the boat to walk on water with Jesus. Alf will join him soon. He's the first one off the boat to swim to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, when he recognizes him. 
Um, the dude was always first, and he's the first person to answer this question, who do you say I am? And he says, in response, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, one word in that response is not like the rest, and it's a word that meant something very specific to Peter and to the apostles and to all the Jewish people, and that's the word Messiah. And he could have ended it at, you are the Messiah, and everyone that was around him and in that day and age would have known exactly what he was talking about. Nowadays, when we hear the term Messiah, we mostly think of Jesus or someone who aspires to Jesus-level influence, someone who has a Messiah complex. And the idea of the Messiah is almost entirely associated with Jesus, and that's great. But we forget that there was a time in human history and in human minds when the concept of the Messiah wasn't linked specifically to Jesus or any specific person. The concept of the Messiah is introduced through the Old Testament prophets, but if you open up your Bible app and search for the term Messiah, you're not going to find that word in the Old Testament. It's a term that was later developed to refer to a person who's prophesied about over and over again in the Old Testament. And the book of the Old Testament with the most references to the Messiah is Isaiah. So today we're going to look at that question, who is Jesus? by asking who the Messiah was promised to be in the book of Isaiah. Three sections to this evening's message. First, the context in which the Messiah is promised. Second, the promises of the Messiah that God's people want. And third, the promises of the Messiah that God's people need. So first, the context in which the Messiah is promised. Second, the Messiah's promises that we all want. And third, the Messiah's promises that we truly need. So first, the context. And we're going to look at this through the book of Isaiah, so we should probably know who Isaiah is. And Isaiah is a prophet whose ministry took place towards the end of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. Now, that might mean gobbledygook to you if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. So here's a quick cliff notes on the Old Testament up until this point. God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Humanity continues to be terrible until God sends a flood to destroy all of humanity except for Noah's family. One of Noah's descendants is a guy named Abraham, who God calls to follow him. One of Abraham's grandsons is a guy named Jacob, who God later renames Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses to liberate them. After Egypt, they screw up again. They have to wander through the desert for a while before finally entering the land that God promised them and conquering all the surrounding nations. God rules them for a while, but then they see other nations around them that have strong men as kings, and so they screw up again, and they ask God for a human king. And God gives them a king named Saul, and then a king named David, and then a king named Solomon. And after Solomon, there's a civil war, and the kingdom split into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And pretty much all of Israel's kings are evil and don't obey God. And most of Judah's kings are the same way, except for a handful. They're evil, and they don't obey God. And so because the kings can't be trusted, God often sends prophets to tell God's people what they're doing wrong and what happens to them if they keep doing wrong. And Isaiah is one of those prophets, and his ministry takes place towards the end of those kingdoms. All caught up? Awesome. So... Isaiah is given his mission through a vision 
where he sees God in his throne room, and upon seeing God, he falls face on the floor and starts wailing, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In seeing God's pureness and holiness, he recognizes his own filthiness and the filth of his people. And God then asks, who can I send as a messenger for me? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, here I am, send me. And God says, okay, here's the message. And like most prophets, Isaiah is telling God's people about the bad news that's coming in the form of God's judgment because the people disobey and rebel, and God really doesn't like that. And when Isaiah asks, how long, God, how long will this endure, God responds, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. When I read this, I'm like, God is not playing. It's awful. Cities lie in waste without inhabitant, houses without people. The closest thing I have to compare this to is what New York City looked like between March and April of 2020, and that wasn't even this bad. And as Isaiah goes on, he, in incredible detail, shows what God's judgment is going to look like. He's going to use his people's enemies to conquer them. He's going to remove them from their land, take them into captivity. There's going to be violence upon violence. The glory of the nation will be taken away, and they'll be oppressed by foreign nations. In the first chapter of Isaiah, he says, Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. Isaiah, or not Isaiah, Israel is conquered by Assyria and the people are scattered. Judah is conquered by Babylon and the people are taken captive and they're subjugated and oppressed by Babylon and then by Persia and then by Rome. And this is the context of the book of Isaiah. It's doom and gloom. It's misery and despair that an entire nation will suffer. It's cruelty and oppression. I see a lot of long faces. It's really depressing, right? There's no sugarcoating it. There's no trying to get through it with positive vibes. It's just bad. And that's the context into which the Messiah is promised. And for many of us, that's our context. Before I move on, I want to stop and acknowledge that for many of us, that is our context. Gloom. I had an experience this week that actually brought me back to some childhood trauma. So literally, that's my context this week. It's gloom, feeling kind of blah about everything. So if that's you, if that's what you're feeling, I just want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that God wants to meet you there as he wanted to for the people of Israel and Judah. And that brings us to the second section of the message, which is into all this doom and gloom comes the promise of the Messiah that we want. Because the book of Isaiah isn't all doom and gloom. Throughout, there are these interjections of hope and light that counter the despair and darkness. And these interjections of hope and light all center around this mysterious figure who came to be known as the Messiah. Many of us are familiar with the Christmas scripture in Isaiah 9. 
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The full passage shows us this person is promised in the midst of doom and gloom. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Paul and everybody said... (laughs) with this we can start putting together a picture of what the messiah is going to be like based on this passage he's a good and benevolent ruler he brings justice and peace and righteousness he's wonderful a prince of peace his rule extends forever and over all things he's a welcome alternative to the cruelty and oppression god's people are suffering And then there's this in Isaiah 11. The Messiah is described as follows. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So in addition to being a good and benevolent ruler, it's someone who's godly, someone who the spirit of God is in, someone who possesses great and divine wisdom, who defends the poor and the oppressed, who restores righteousness throughout the world, who is faithful to the people. After that, it gets a little strange. The wolf and lamb dwelling together, the leopard and the goat, the lion and the calf. But the idea here is the Messiah's protection is so secure that those who would normally fear danger have nothing to fear when the Messiah rules. And then in Isaiah 49, it talks about the Messiah freeing prisoners, providing abundantly for them, giving people back the inheritance that was taken from them. So from all of these, we get this composite image of the Messiah as a great liberator, someone like Moses, who frees the people and takes them out of slavery in Egypt, someone like Joshua, 
who leads the people in conquering their enemies, securing for them their promised land of milk and honey. Someone like David, a good king after God's heart. Someone like Solomon who ushers in prosperity. The Messiah was going to take the people out of their horrible, terrible, no good, very bad circumstances. And that's the key word, circumstances. Out of captivity, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of poverty, out of terrible circumstances. Into glory, into honor, into an inheritance, into peace, into prosperity, into better circumstances. That's the promise of the Messiah that God's people want. It's the promise of the Messiah that we all want. Promise of someone who will reverse our circumstances and deliver us all out of the doom and gloom we find ourselves in. But there's what God's people want, and then there's the promises of the Messiah that God's people truly need. And the first thing that God's people truly need is shown in Isaiah 2, where it says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. What God's people truly need is to worship him. What God's people truly need is to learn God's ways and walk in his paths. In fact, it's worshiping him. It's learning his ways and walking in his paths that unlock the first set of promises, the changing of our circumstances, the deliverance from our doom and gloom. Listen to this in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our thoughts are on our circumstances. Our thoughts are on the things that we see around us that are not going the way we want them to. His thoughts are about much more than our circumstances. His ways are about much more than the things in our lives that are hard. His thoughts are about the condition of our hearts and our souls. It's only when our hearts and our souls, which are thirsty, find their satisfaction in him. It's only when our hearts and our souls come to his table and partake of his wine and his milk. It's only when our hearts and our souls stop spending resources and energy on what doesn't actually satisfy. Only when our hearts and our souls stop looking at our circumstances, the things of this world, as our source of satisfaction and look to him. Instead, it's only when our hearts and our souls look to him that we'll experience true satisfaction, true joy, true freedom. First promise the Messiah that we truly need is to worship God. 
Messiah promises a path to worshiping him, to learning his ways, to walking in his paths, and that is the path that will most satisfy our souls. The second promise of the Messiah that we need stands in contrast to the first depiction we saw of him as a great and powerful liberator. When you look at Isaiah, that's what most of the passages are. The Messiah is gonna usher in all this peace and all this prosperity, but then there's one passage that presents a very different picture, and that's in Isaiah 53. And I'm gonna read all 12 verses of Isaiah 53. It's gonna go a while. And uh, they're gonna put it up on the screen, and if you wanna pull it up in, um, in the book, uh, you can follow along. And it reads, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken stricken for the transgression of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a very different picture of the Messiah. Instead of just being an almighty conqueror, we see him being crushed. We see him being rejected. It's an unattractive figure. He's one we would pity. Someone who's intimately familiar with pain. Someone who would suffer to the point of death. Despised and ridiculed and held in low esteem. Punished by God and whose punishment would somehow bring us peace. Someone on whom God lays the sins and the rebellion of us all. Now let's back up for a second, because it's really difficult to reconcile these two images of the Messiah. 
How is he at once a conquering king, a wise leader, a good and benevolent judge, and someone who suffers and is ridiculed and despised and put to death? Why does he need to suffer? Why can't the Messiah just come in and do away with everything that's wrong with the world and restore everything that's right? Why can't the Messiah just come in and destroy all the oppressors and restore all the oppressed? Why can't the Messiah just come in and destroy the evil empires of Babylon and Rome and restore his people? Well, how do we get here in the first place? How did God's people get here? Why are they oppressed? Why are they suffering? We're told it's because of their rebellion. Because they chose over and over again to disregard and disobey God. They chose over and over again to put themselves or other gods in God's place of supremacy over their lives. So if Messiah is going to come and destroy all oppression and evil, not even God's people survive. But part of the promise is that restoration is coming. The people in darkness will see a great light. Weeping may have lasted generations, but joy is coming. God's people not only survive, they thrive in relationship with him. How? You see, the promise people want, the promise we like, the promise we hold on to, is that the Messiah is going to deliver us from our circumstances. But in order for God to completely restore us, he has to do a lot more than deliver us from our circumstances. He has to deal with the original problem. And the original problem isn't our circumstances. The original problem wasn't the Babylonians or the Assyrians. It's not my kids or my marriage, my work, my relationships. The original problem is me. The original problem is my sin, my rebellion, my rejection and disregard for God and his rule over my life. And God, who is completely holy, won't tolerate any rebellion in me. So if he wants to restore our relationship, he has to figure out how to get rid of the stench of sin and rebellion that's on every single one of us. Because it's sin that's the original problem. It doesn't mean those other problems aren't problems but the Messiah wasn't just gonna be another Band-Aid. What good would it do for God to free his people from oppression if they were just gonna rebel again? No, he had to deal with the original problem once and for all, and God, in his great wisdom, came up with a way to do just that. And that's where the suffering Messiah comes in. Promised Messiah wasn't go was going to be a liberator, yes, but a different kind of liberator a liberator whose work would be done once and for all, which means he'd be a sacrifice. He'd be a stand-in for us, a literal scapegoat, someone to take on all the pain and all the wrath of God that's supposed to be headed our way, and in so doing, allow God to view us as completely separated from our transgressions. Allow God to look at us and remember our sin no more, to completely forget our rebellion and in so doing, restore us to relationship with him. That's who the Messiah was promised to be. That's the promise of the Messiah we truly need. See, the people who didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah were only looking at the promise they wanted. Even Jesus' apostles got this wrong. They looked for him to change their circumstances or overthrow Rome and liberate God's people. Even Peter doesn't get it at first. Literally a few verses after declaring 
to Jesus that he is the Messiah. Jesus then tells Peter he's going to go to the cross and die. And Peter says, no, Lord, never. And Jesus has to rebuke him. The people who did embrace Jesus as Messiah were like the Samaritan woman at the well, or the tax collectors, or the woman caught in adultery, who saw him as the fulfillment of the promise to liberate them from their biggest problem, their original problem, their own rebellion. Someone who would bring them freedom from sin and restoration as God's sons and daughters who walk in his ways. So the question for all of us is what kind of Messiah are we looking for? One who can merely give us what we want and change our circumstances? Or one who can fix our biggest problem by liberating us from our own rebellion? Let's pray. Father, you are just so good. Um, You're so good and wise, and you had this plan from the beginning. This plan to bring us back into relationship with you through the promised Messiah, through Jesus, your son. And so we just thank you. We just thank you and we fall at your feet and we call you Lord and Savior. And we ask you... to give us what we truly need. Freedom. Not just from our circumstances, yes, from our circumstances, but not just from our circumstances. Freedom to be in complete relationship with you. We ask this in your son's name, Jesus, through whom all this is possible. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.